I have the privilege of being able to return here at least once a year to the river. And I was thinking, maybe you have heard this reference before, that you can return to the same place on the bank of a river every day, but you never step into the same river. And I think that's really true here. And um, so appreciate Byron and Becky and uh, this entire family that opens their arms to us at least once a year. That's probably about all you can tolerate me anyway. Well, we would ask you, uh, he made mention of our travels, we would ask you to, um, as you feel prompted to, to be praying for us. We're returning in just a few weeks for our third time to to China and to Taiwan. We have a a really an effectual door of utterances open to us there. Uh, During the day, we'll be teaching hundreds of students that are in a ministry school. Uh, We'll have the opportunity on one night to speak to about 2,000 Teenagers through 20-year-olds. It's pretty exciting. And um, last year when we were there, one of the services, this church has 11,000 members in 20-some-odd locations. Uh, We had the opportunity to speak in a nightclub. And that was a lot of fun. It was my first time, I think. I've been to nightclubs before, (laughs) uh, but not to teach. So uh, we appreciate uh, if you are... That comes to your mind in the next few weeks to uh, think of us in prayer. We do have another book that is coming out October the 10th, and uh, I wished I had brought some promotional materials for it. Um, The title of the book is called Wandering and Wondering, The Process That Leads to Purpose. Some of the chapters in it uh, are titled, An Overnight Success Takes Years. (laughs) A Long Obedience in the Same Direction. Um, navigating transitions. Um, so you, get the, you catch the drift, don't you? That um, the realization of our destiny can come in an instant, but the actualization, some of it sometimes, is a very protracted period of time. And if you've lived long enough on this planet, you know that to be true. It's not as simple as pointing the cursor of our intention at our purpose and downloading it in a matter of minutes. At least that's been my experience. So that comes out again October the 10th. You can find it on an Amazon. It's being published uh, by Whitaker. Now, I'm going to ask you, if you will, to turn very quickly to Matthew's Gospel in chapter 17. I'll join you there in just a moment. Uh, but before I do, I'm going to take a risk here and to address something that may be a bit controversial. And I think we need to increase our tolerance for controversy because none of us by no means are as smart as all of us. I've come to the realization, especially in the last few years, that it's really a good thing when I discover that I've been wrong because when I discover that I've been wrong, it means I'm learning. Are you still with me? Uh, do you realize that God never tests us to teach, to test us to discover what we've learned as if he doesn't already know, but he continues to test us to see if we're still willing to learn. And that's where I want to remain after 40 years of doing this. And I, it, that seems strange as it falls from my lips. I've been doing this 40 years, actually longer. And uh, to say that, is, is challenging, even though I knew I was going to say it before you did. It's still challenging. And so uh, I know that there was mention earlier of uh, this behemoth of a storm 
that is bearing down on Florida. Um, from what I gather, from what I've seen in the news, this one is unprecedented. It's, um, it eclipses even some of the cyclones that have, been sweep, that have swept across the planet in the last few years of recorded history. So here's what I'm going to say. And uh, I'm sure that there will be people in the room that will disagree with this statement. I personally do not subscribe, uh, even though I have great respect for some that are going in this direction. I don't subscribe to this thread of theodicy. And the word theodicy has to do with God vindicating himself against evil. I, I just don't buy into this criteria that God is sending judgment on the planet and the criteria for that, the basis of it, is wherever there is concentrated evil. If that is the criteria, and I would like to appeal to you in all humility, if that's the criteria, and locations on the planet should be magnets for decimation, maybe it should be Washington, D.C. <laughs> and not a bunch of retired geriatrics in Florida. <clears throat> I think we're still, we're still laboring with this um, Old Testament concept of God who seemed to have a bloodlust that could never be satisfied. And our, our sense of justice, and I'll say this and I'm going to quickly move on. Our sense of justice is very retributive and not restorative. Our sense of justice is depicted in a, you know, the, probably the best known icon in this country is a woman who stands in front of the Supreme Court. She's got a blindfold on. She has a sword in one hand and she has a set of scales in the other. So justice is blind. That's our sense of justice. I get that, and I understand that to a degree that works in the civil dimension. But if we try to project that upon God, we're going to be in serious error because God is not blind. And he's not holding a set of scales in one hand that says, you know, if you just tip it too far the other way, you've had it, you're going to get the sword. You can even read, you can even read in the Old Testament about the loving kindness of God and how that he circumvented wrath again and again and again. So I got that off my chest. I think I may have survived it. I'm surveying the audience here to make sure I'm still in good standing. I'm going to read a rather lengthy passage of Scripture and try to get as much done of this as I possibly can in Matthew chapter 17. I'm going to be talking to you about faith and uncertainty. Faith and uncertainty because it seems that those words, if you put those words in juxtaposition to one another, that they are an odd couple. But everything in life has to be understood in contrast. You have to have something to contrast, opposing forces. Love has to have the, has to have the presence of fear, light, darkness, faith, doubt. And so on. This is the tension that we all live in every single day. Are you still with me? So I think that we need to be honest about that and know that God is not defensive and God does not get upset when we doubt. As a matter of fact, it seems to me that he has 
this pathology in the Old Testament in particular, that he gravitates toward those who are the most barren. There are at least seven barren women in Scripture. There are more than that, but seven barren women in Scripture that he singled out for the purpose of conceiving great things in their dead and barren womb. Most of us, really in church, we learn how to suppress what we really want to express for fear that we'll be ostracized. When in reality, I think if we were honest, then that in itself would open our womb so that we could be inseminated with true faith. So, in Matthew chapter 17, I said I was going to read a lengthy passage, but I understand uh, the restraints of time here. In 17, beginning with verse 1 through verse 13, you have the account given to us whenever Jesus experiences what we call the transfiguration. We refer to this as the Mount of Transfiguration. This mountain is Mount Hermon. It's one of the highest peaks in northern Palestine. It's over 9,000 feet. And that's, not a, that's really not that tall of a mountain, you know, when you consider other mountains in the world. But in that particular, you know, in the cradle here of civilization, here in Palestine or in Jerusalem or Israel, I should say. Um, and <laughs> that's a matter of semantics. But anyway, I'm going to move on. Um, over 9,000 feet. On a, clear, on a clear day, you could see the Mediterranean from there. You could actually, on a clear day, you could see Jerusalem. And so Jesus predicts, take, he picks this particular mountain, and he doesn't really tell the disciples what his intent is. They don't really know what to expect. They're just following him. If you can imagine them as they're ascending and probably... When they reach three or 4,000 feet, the air's getting thinner and thinner. They're out of breath. He hasn't really made it clear to them why he wanted to go to the top of this mountain. They don't know that they are going to experience one of the most epic things that had ever happened in his earthly existence when he is transfigured before them. And it's so difficult to look. He eclipses everything. It's so difficult to look at him. It's almost as blinding as trying to stare into the sun. So you remember this, don't you? And while they're there, something happens. Elijah appears and Moses appear to the Lord. Now, I'm sure that there are a lot of you that have differing opinions as to why it was necessary for Moses and Elijah to appear to him. And, you know, we can read what the text says and discover that they appeared to him to speak to him about his impending death. Which I think begs the question, why did Jesus, why did Jesus have need of this affirmation from Moses and Elijah, these Old Testament patriarchs, that really, when they left the earthly dimension, they left in quite a mysterious way. There's a lot of conjecture about Moses and his death. There's, he didn't die of natural causes, and they certainly didn't know the place of his burial. Elijah is taken away in a whirlwind. He's taken away in a chariot of fire. So why did Moses and Elijah have to appear to Jesus to speak to him concerning his death? Is it possible that even Jesus in this moment needed further affirmation? That may seem almost sacrilegious for me to say that. In Matthew chapter 16, the chapter prior to this, Remember Jesus, and I, you know, I've read this passage for four decades or more. 
And Jesus asked the question of the disciples, who are men saying that I am? Now, you know the responses. Well, some of them saying you're Jeremiah, some say you're Elijah, some say you're John the Baptist. Who do you say that I am? And, of course, Peter, the most unlikely one of the bunch, blurts it out. I think he was as surprised as everybody else that he had the answer. You know, sometimes I think I'm hearing from God, and I'm not, and sometimes I don't think I'm hearing from God, and I am. You're the Christ. You're the Son of the living God. You know what followed? Upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Is it possible? Is it possible that even in that moment... In the, eternal, in the internal dialogue that Jesus was having with himself because his identity was under assault from the temptation all the way to the dying hours on the cross. Did Jesus, and now I, I know that's difficult for us to wrap our minds around, but Jesus had to be assaulted by doubt and uncertainty. If he didn't, he was not tempted in all points. We're going to have to didact that from the scripture, aren't we? He was tempted in all points, as we are, even without sin. I make that abundantly clear. But if his identity was not constantly in question, and he, even though it does not become so apparent on the pages of Scripture, he had to be dealing from time to time with this, and he had to have confirmation. I'm, I'm encouraged by that. Even the Son of God, because he refers to himself more as the Son of Man than anything else. So, what is happening? Jesus has taken Peter, James, and John up there with him to have this experience. For many years, maybe you've heard this reference before, for many years, I thought that this inner three, the reason why he is constantly taking them into experiences that he didn't take the other nine, is because they showed more promise, or maybe they seem to be more devoted and consecrated. I've since come to believe that because they always seem to be causing problems, he felt it necessary to keep them closer to him. I think that makes more sense than anything else. All of us in this room, if you have a pulse, you have a problem, or you're living with a problem, or you may be causing problems. <laughs> so what is happening with the other nine? This is where we segue into the text that I want to deal with and talking to you about faith and uncertainty, because I think that they are inextricable. You cannot separate the two. Certitude has been popularized. Certitude has been worshipped, and I'm getting ahead of myself, so let me read. So when they came down the mountain, there was a multitude there that came to him, and a certain man kneeling down to him, saying, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is a lunatic and sore vexed. When it calls him a lunatic, you see in the word lunar, it seemed that there was something about the phases of the moon would trigger this latent well-disguised spirit that he was hosting. And it would throw him into the water and into the fire. I brought, the, I brought him to the disciples, and they could not cure him. And Jesus answered and said, and I think this is probably one of the most misinterpreted things that Jesus said, as far as I'm concerned. O faithless and perverse generation, 
How long shall I be with you? How long shall I suffer you? Bring him hither to me. And Jesus rebuked the devil and departed. He departed out of him, and the child was cured from that very hour. Then came the disciples to Jesus apart and said, Why could we not cast him out? And Jesus said unto him, Because of your unbelief. For verily I say unto you, and this, this really is comical. We don't really, I think, give Jesus the credit for the sense of humor that he has because he uses, you know, what we refer to as hyperbole here. He uses, a, a, you know, an exaggeration. He says, if you have faith as a grain of mustard seed, you'll say unto this mountain, remove, hence yonder place, and it shall be removed, and nothing shall be impossible to you. So he takes something that is infinitesimal, Something that a mustard seed, as I understand, a mustard seed is so insignificant that, you know, it could, you know, be stuck in the perspiration in the palm of your hand and one of the creases in your hand, and you wouldn't even know it's there. It's imperceptible. And Jesus had the audacity to tell them because, see, they were coming to the wrong conclusions. They were thinking that they had to have mammoth faith in order to do this. And Jesus said, oh, no, you've got it wrong. See, I personally believe it's in, in the church culture that I've come up in, we, our faith has been in the wrong things. It's been about our faith and our ability to summon it, to generate it, to somehow reach deeper inside and bring up something that has been suppressed there. And that's what I would like to address Because we really have not clearly understood, as far as I'm concerned, the distinction between faith and belief. Now, my time is limited, so I don't have really the opportunity here to unpack this in, in the depth that I, in the breadth that I'd like to. But the word faith and unbelief quite often are used interchangeably. The word faith and belief are used interchangeably in the text, the gospel narrative. But what I want to get to here, and maybe this will help you because it's been incredibly helpful for me. Because I know what it's like and I feel that I'm looking at a group of people here that know what it's like to go through protracted seasons of uncertainty. Um, Thomas Merton would call it the long, dark night of the soul. Where we tend to forget it's never been about what you believe about God but what God believes about you. Most of us are guilty of over-promising and under-delivering, thinking that our relationship with God is based on how many promises I've made to Him, which is not true at all. Our relationship with God has never been based on the many promises that you have and will make to him, but on the singular promise that he made to you, and that is he will never leave or forsake you. Yeah. Thank you, Lord. That's it. Yes, thank you, Lord. The human mind and the ego is unaware of how we complicate things. Amen? Amen. Totally unaware of it. So, let me just give you this very elementary distinction between faith and belief because the word belief, to me, is a what word. Say what. What? 
It implies what I believe I believe about God. This is what I believe about God. It has to do with creeds. It has to do with I believe that Jesus is the Son of God, was, is, and always the Son of God. He was not just a Jewish carpenter, an itinerant rabbi, that he was God incarnate. And atheists don't. They don't believe that. So it's a what word. It has to do with content. It has to do with the way that I think about him, which most of the time is seldom right. Seldom is it, is it right. That's what belief is. Faith is a who word. It has to do with him, not with you. And see, this is, to me, this is where we've even misunderstood the beginning of our relationship with the Lord. You know, and I'm, I don't want you to feel like I'm playing semantic games here, but most every one of us in here, when we share our testimony, we talk about how we invited Jesus into our lives. And I'm not, I'm not questioning the legitimacy of your relationship with the Lord if you describe it in that way, that at some point in time, you invited Jesus into your life. But maybe we need to look at it this way, because you, you, do you realize that when the first two words that the disciples ever heard Jesus say was, follow me? Oh and have you, ever wondered, have you ever wondered why those two words were so compelling that they walked away? Take, for example, the fishermen. When they walked away from this business, and see, they didn't just walk away from their livelihood. You see, in, in the ancient culture, if you walked away from whether you're a fisherman or a farmer or what, whatever your occupation was, you were also walk, walking away from generations of identity. So it had to be a pretty compelling thing for them just not to walk away from their livelihood, but to walk away of generations of identity. You know, one sidebar here, you maybe remember the story of Naboth and Ahab. Ahab was this wealthy, greedy, you know, king, and he seized the vineyard of Naboth. And it wasn't a big one, but it was a very fruitful one. He decided that he wanted, and in his greed, he decided that he was either going to negotiate with him or take it from him, and he wound up taking it from him. He even tried to offer him a bigger, more value, valuable vineyard. Do, you do remember this old obscure story? But Naboth refused to do it. So why would Naboth hold on to this vineyard that was lesser value when he's being offered something that's possibly five times the value of his? Because his identity was intrinsically rooted in the soil of that vineyard. It had been with his family for generations. So when the disciples, when Jesus said, follow me, and, he, and they just dropped their nets, what was so compelling about that? Well, you do remember Jesus said, you didn't choose me, but I chose you. I'm not sure we understand fully what's behind those words. Because what Jesus did, Jesus broke with total rabbinical protocol when he said, follow me. Because prior to Jesus, disciples chose their rabbis it wasn't the other way around, rabbis choosing disciples. So they knew, wow, this is different. Now, what I was getting about to get to before you interrupted me is maybe 
our description of our crisis experience or our salvation experience where we invited Jesus into our life. Maybe it's the other way around. Maybe our salvation experience is not so much about us inviting him into our life, but him inviting us into his. That's a big game changer as far as I'm concerned. Because that means that for the next three and a half years, they're going to face uncertainty at every turn. He's going to say very paradoxical and enigmatic things to them over and over and over. Just when they feel like they're getting clarity, he introduces them to new levels of intrigue. But you said yesterday. Over and over that goes. And see, that's to me what following Jesus looks like. And following Jesus is far more risky than worshiping him. You know, I like what one writer said. He says, you know, we like to, and, and this goes against the grain, I know, we, we like to, we would prefer to hear Jesus say something that he never said, and that is to worship him when he said, follow me, because worship doesn't involve any risk. He did talk about worship, but he didn't demand it. He didn't command it, did he? Certitude is not a substitute for authentic faith. Certitude is popular. It's popular because it's easy. It doesn't involve wrestling with any doubt whatsoever. No long dark nights of the soul. No costly agonizing over the matter. No testing yourself. No hard questions. You just step, you'd accept a secondhand assumption or a majority opinion of popular sentiment and the final word and settle into certainty. Real faith will cost you. And everybody should say amen to that. We don't realize it, but there, there is no such thing as unbiased thought. We bring into every new experience every old experience and every old belief. And we try to interpret God's intentions based on that. I like what David Dark says. He's, he's a guy that right now that uh, I think is speaking volumes in the, in, the, in the social media world. He said, I suspect that any God who is nervous, defensive, or angry in the face of questions is a false God. He said, I've begun to realize that I have often ascribed to God the traits of people who are ill at ease and anxious. And if I ask questions, especially that challenge the accepted norm, I'd be ostracized. We, sing, we were singing earlier, and I think, I think I'm pretty much in rhythm here with you because the, it seemed like the continual flow of the worship was about faith and trust and your goodness. One day I was reading the, word, the well-worn words of the Apostle Paul when he says, We walk by faith and... Thank you. Not by sight. And faith comes by hearing. And that, that struck me. I thought, all right, he says, we walk by faith and not by sight. And faith comes by hearing. And so he's associating them with senses that I'm familiar with, hearing and seeing. And so I began to see, and pardon me in my basic principles of interpretation here, I began to see that when I feel as if I am totally blind, he's teaching me how to hear And when I feel like I'm totally deaf, he's teaching me how to see because he understands how I have this tendency to become habituated on certain sensory means of detecting his activity. Herein lies uncertainty. Did you get what I just said? 
When I can't see, he's teaching me how to hear. When I can't hear, he's teaching me how to hear. Can't see, he's teaching me how to hear. When I can't hear, he's teaching me how to see. Just that simple. And it's really not, I mean, does that sound contradictory to us talking about he's a good God, you're, you're, you're a good father? Yes, you are. You're a good father. No, it's not at all. Because I think he understands that if we did not have these elements of constant shifting and changing going on, that we would not experience the full adventure of faith that he intended for us to experience. It'd be monotonous. Maybe maybe mystery is one of the greatest gifts he's ever given us. Oddly enough. So I told you believing is a what word and faith is a who word. Now let's talk about the faith of God and your faith. Notice I said the faith of God and your faith. Paul would say to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.13, he says, if we are faithless, he remains faithful because he cannot deny himself. Romans 3, 3, for what if some did not believe? Will their unbelief make the faithful of God, God know of no effect? So I am coming to this simple conclusion in the years that I have remaining that what God believes about me has always been far more important than what, anything I've ever believed about him. When the scriptures talk about faith, it's not talking about this self-generated mental persuasion. Not long ago, I was reading Ephesians 4, when Paul talks about one Lord, one faith, one baptism. And I saw the word one faith there. And I didn't realize that I had read that through my evangelical fundamentalist lens. That what he's talking about, that one faith there, has to do with me believing in the fundamentals that I've been taught as a Christian. And I really don't think that's what Paul was talking about at all. What he was talking about was one faith. There's only one faith, and it's the faith of Jesus. That's why he says in Hebrews 12 that he is the author, the author and the finisher of our faith. This is uh, refreshing to me. I hope it is to you. It's a huge relief because I realize sometimes in my ineptness or all my own perceived ineptness and inadequacies and insecurities that he's not off-put by that. He's not embarrassed by that. He understands my frame. He He knows what I'm going to say before I say it, and he has not passed judgment about it. You know, the Apostle Paul said in Galatians 2.20, probably one of the most well-known statements he ever made, he said, I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me, and the life I now live, I live by the faith, the faith of the Son of God. There it is. I rest my case. He says, I don't even live by my own faith. He says, it's not even me that lives anymore. 
He began to understand. And when this dawned on me about the in Christ message, the beautiful mystery of what it means to be in Christ, because Paul has this obsession with it. He's always talking about being in Christ and Christ in you. And so, I mean, is it, he can't make up his mind. We are in Christ and Christ is in us. You can't separate the two. That's what he's, try, that, that's what he's trying to help us to understand. Then I begin to realize that He never, ever has wanted me to live for him, even though I labored under this false notion for probably three decades or more, thinking I was to live for Jesus. The Christian life is not difficult. It's impossible. (laughs) He never wanted you to live for him. If you could do that, you wouldn't need his faith. He wants to live his life in and through you. This is John 15. This is understanding what it means to abide in him. This beautiful metaphor that he uses. There must have been a vineyard nearby. And he decided to say, look over there. If you abide in me and I abide in you, you can bear much fruit, right? I mean, you ever walk by a vine and hear it groaning You do understand that creation is God's original language to begin with. And everything we have in the Bible is what man says about God. Maybe maybe we'd be better off sometimes to go out and engage the cosmic Christ because you were singing out of Colossians that he is by him and through him are all things. Just that simple. So I'm talking about not your faith. Get over yourself. I didn't mean for that to be rude. God knows I've been trying to get over myself for a long time. No, it's got to be about studying more and praying more. Those things certainly have value. I'm not saying, but they're supplementary. They never would substitute. Maybe... Maybe one of the things that causes so many confusing things in our lives and we're caught in daily conundrums is because we simply have complicated it and don't understand it. It's his faith. He started it. He'll finish it. I'm confident. I'm not confident in myself. I'm confident that he who began this will finish it. And I'm also confident that there's nothing I can do to so screw it up that he can't clean it up. Because I've messed it up pretty bad in the last 48 hours. Anybody else? Just as I am. It really is, the gospel is simple. <coughs> am, am I the only person in the room that has this tendency sometimes to be obsessive and complicated in your thinking and you complicate the most simple things? <laughs> so we read into what Jesus said there in the text and I'm almost 
finish here. Where is Jacob? Is he still here in the team? You guys come on up. We, we read into it, you know, it's almost like we hear in the tone of Jesus' voice this, this harshness. Where's your faith? Tell you what, this kind doesn't come out but by prayer and fasting. And what, you know what the lens we read into that? We read performance. Try harder. But you know, honest, if, if, you've ever, if you've ever fasted for any period of time, you, you know what it does? It, it, it just silences these gnawing voices. It, it, is, it is you slowly dying your ego, your psyche, this, you know, you get to a certain point where the voices that have been a part of the dominant narrative are no longer. That's the whole point. It's not just deprivation from food. Many years ago, I'll close with this. Uh, many years ago, I was um, at the church pastoring um, that you mentioned earlier. And... Um, I probably was in my 30s, and we had a, a guy that we'd been supporting for many years in Haiti. And uh, this gentleman was unlike a lot of missionaries that would go to Haiti. I'd, I'd visited his, uh, his work there uh, whenever there was military unrest. You know, most of the missionaries would, would leave. He never left. He would never leave. And so he's, he's sharing his testimony at our church and I'm sitting on the front row, and I'm, I'm listening to this man describe the hardship. I'm listening to him describe about how he and his wife, in the first few years, almost died from dengue fever and from malaria. How that they went through extreme, extreme hardship. The attack of voodoo priests, and on and on. And I'm, I'm sitting there on the front row, thinking I'm leading this large congregation and this man is up sharing and this is what's going on in my head I mean it, I, it was, I was sabotaging myself in a big way and I'm thinking you probably know where I'm going to go I'm not even sure I'm a Christian listening to this guy because I know me and I could never endure what he's endured I could never do that And the Lord knew I needed a break. I was sitting about where you are right now. And uh, he said, you're focusing on the wrong thing. Because I was just totally stunned by this man. He said, you're looking at the wrong thing. He says, you're looking at him. You don't realize that it's my grace that's empowered him to do that. Why are you infatuated with him and not stunned by the grace that I chose to give George to tell us. Go ahead and stand. I can promise you he doesn't demand faith from you. He wants to provide it. You want it? He's not going to demand it. He wants to provide it. 
Peter denied the Lord three times. I love this. Remember when Jesus was trying to prepare him for it? He said, you're going to deny me three times because Satan has desired to sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith would fail not. Well, it appeared to fail. But in his resurrection, he came and brought him three affirmations he never brought up. And lacking faith. Maybe we need to repent. Anybody here need to repent? Just, just change your mind. Think another thought. Think another thought about God and about yourself. Lord, these sons and daughters are here, many of which that have endured the unimaginable. I see faces, and as I travel all over the world, I see the faces of people, and sometimes I wonder what's going on behind those eyes. You know. And I pray for the gift of repentance this morning. I'm not talking about us feeling proportionate guilt to the point that, okay, I'll help you now. No, to change my mind about God and allow Him to change his, my mind about myself and just accept it, the faith that He wants to give. And I'm going to tell you what you're going to need. If you go down this road and it be, this dynamic begins to work in you, first thing that's going to happen is you are going to be pissed at yourself because you're going to realize you made it harder than it had to be. What? I, yeah, it's not him doing anything to you. And he will let you just wear yourself out. Can I get a witness on that? He'll let you do that. So, we, Lord, we lift our hands without wrath or doubting. We lift our hands in submission and surrender. We recognize that we're not here to survive, but we're still breathing today on this journey so that we can learn greater measures of surrender. That's what I'm here for. That's why I showed up, is to learn how to surrender. So we were surrendering you right now in Jesus' name. Go ahead and sing, Jacob. In Christ alone.